if I can help entrepreneurs have a better life themselves, they're going to be more successful. Welcome to the podcast by Mikhail Alphon. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I wanted to ask you a question. Are you looking to launch your own podcast? If you are, you have to check out Mike Me Audio. My podcast would not sound nearly as amazing as it does if it wasn't for their help. And I frequently recommend them to my clients at Blue Light so you know it's legit. They have a full suite of services to help you launch your own show from ear-catching intros, editing services, and they'll even help you publish your finalized episodes. Now, they've worked with shows like Brittany Crystal's Beyond Influential, Libsyn's The Feed, so you know you're in good company. So if you're looking to launch your own podcast, and you know I recommend you should if you're building a personal brand or a business, just mention my name to nick at mikeme.com and you'll get your first episode edited for free. Again, reach out to nick at mikeme.com. That's N-I-C-K at MikeMe.com, and they'll edit your first episode for free when you mention this show. But before I speak too much, let's get on to the podcast. What's up, Socialite, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is the best-selling author of Exactly Where You Want to Be and a serial entrepreneur who started his first business at the age of 13. He's the CEO of NetResults, an agency which over the last 20 years has helped United States agencies implement strategies to give their clients international reach in over 37 countries. He's also the founder of the Alternative Board, which facilitates meetings that promote out-of-the-box thinking amongst business owners and executives. Over the last 10 years, he's helped students learn the ins and outs of crisis communications, advertising and promotions, and international marketing as a professor at Chapman University right here in Orange County. And as if that's not enough, he also coaches fellow founders and C-level executives on making their businesses more profitable while helping them achieve their champagne moments. But before I speak too much, please allow me in welcoming Nick Layton onto the show. Hey, Mikhail. Great to see you. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, man. It's really good to see you. Um, man, let's start from the beginning. Uh, to the listener who might not know who you are yet, where are you from? I know you were uh, you were born on a small Greek island and uh, kind of started your whole journey there. So can sure. we start there? Yeah, sure. Um, if you've seen the movie uh, Mamma Mia or you've seen the play, that's pretty much how I started. Very small island. Um, my parents were hanging out there. It seemed like a good th- place to be in the early 70s. So, But I quickly moved when I was about two into the UK um, and hung out in the UK. And then like so many entrepreneurs that I meet here, um, at the age of seven or eight or nine, I realized I had a problem at school. Was I kind of wasn't getting the grades. I wasn't getting what I really wanted to. But I knew I was clever. I knew I could get things. Um, and I got tested and they realized I was dyslexic. Mm. And so many great entrepreneurs around us are dyslexic as well. They're trying to find that emotional way, that that creative way to express themselves. And back then, they sent me off to dyslexic school. So I went to a boarding school at the age of 11, um, which was kind of like um, Harry Potter, except for we didn't have moving staircases. But it was super fun. <laughs> and that's where I started my first business when I was 13. What was your first business at 13? Uh, well, it was um, legal, but maybe not very ethical. Um, my mother would send me Playboy magazines. I'd sell them to the other kids there. I think that's a great business model for 13-year-olds. Well, you, you know, it, it, it had its problems, and I realized this really early on that if I sold magazines, that then my market dried up because there was no more demand. So I had to change more from a buy-sell to more of a lease agreement. Now, that was a better business model. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's so awesome. Um, so, uh, you know, you mentioned that in school, 
you know, you maybe didn't perform well on like the standard like metrics, right? How did your parents handle that at the time? And how did you handle that as an individual? You know what? I think maybe in the 70s, 80s, it was a changing time. Dyslexia was beginning to get known. Already there were people like Richard Branson who was out there and he was saying he was dyslexic. And so plenty of people were. Dyslexia is something which is hereditary anyway. So mm-hmm. clearly the, my mother would send me letters when I was a boarding school. She couldn't spell for anything. So, you know, she had no problem with it. <laughs> When you graduated from university and mm-hmm. all this, you didn't start a business right out the gate, right? You actually started right. working for a company that was helping, uh, helping sell, was it printing products? Yeah, printing products, yeah. So um, when I graduated, I thought I wanted to go and do, in the UK, we call it the milk round. I think there's something very similar here where all the largest companies go and try and find the best recruits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they take you straight out of college and they give you like a two-year training program. And that sounded kind of fun to me. So I thought, well, I'll do that. So I applied. And a couple of the large companies gave me offers. But the more I did the research, the more I went and spoke to people who were in that graduate training program, they all turned out to be the same person. They all looked the same. They all acted the same. They had no passion behind them. They were just doing the steps. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I need more than that. So that's when I decided I'd go and try and find something completely different. And the first company I worked for was tiny. It was, um, I think I was the third or fourth employee. It was on a farm. It was in a barn. Literally, I'd kick the chickens and the turkeys out the way in the morning to get into work. And we grew something from something very small. And that gave me a real taste for entrepreneurialism. Um, and, and there are a lot of people right now, it's very fashionable to say you should just go and work stupidly hard for hardly any money. And that's really what it was like. Sure. Um, and then I, as I grew a little bit more, I mean, I was thrown in at the deep end. I was, I was tempted by uh, the business owner who said, you can be the business executive of the business. I'm like, ah, that sounds like a great title. Sure, yeah, I'll do that. I mean, I had no idea what it meant. It meant I did everything. So yeah, we were emptying trash cans. We were making coffee. We were making sales call. But I guess that's where I spend the most amount of my time selling, mm-hmm. which I think is probably one of the biggest talents that everyone has to have if you want to be an entrepreneur. You're constantly selling either to your customers, potential customers, or maybe to your teams or to vendors or to partners. So sales is such a big element as being an entrepreneur. Didn't you get your next job kind of by accident because you were offered a free trip or something? Yeah, that, no. So that, that's kind of what happened. Um, I was really happy working for this small company. I got a lot of um, satisfaction out of it. We had great clients, and that was great. Um, in fact, and they gave me an opportunity to start a business for him. We were selling printer consumables, and he came to me and said, Nick, I'm going to give you the equivalent of $3,000, and I'll let you set a second company up for us. And you have complete control of that. But you can't hire any people. You can't have any more space. You can't hire another truck or anything. And he goes, ah, and if I were you, I would um, sell to the same client base. So I set up a company for him selling um, printer con- printers. So we did printer consumables and made sense to go to printers. So I was having the best time. But I would go out and I'd go networking all the time. Every week, um, I'd have to go to networking, and I hated networking. I hated going out and meeting people cold. It wasn't my thing. So I had a game <laughs> with myself that I would take 15 business cards, I'd put them in my hand, and I'd walk into the networking, and I knew if I could get rid of 15 cards, then I could leave. That was what I'd say to myself. So obviously, I was crap at networking because I'd give someone a card and walk off. I'd had no relationship with them. But one day, I got a call from a guy, and he said, hey, Nick, we met at this networking event the other night. You said that you'd do me a favor. I'm like, sure I did. So I'm listening, I'm thinking, hey, okay, I'll give this guy some advice or something or help him out in some way, and then maybe he'll buy from me in the future. That seems to be a way it works. So the guy said, look, I'm a headhunter, and um, I, so I place people in technology companies, and we've got this one role right now, which is open. I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm not looking for a job. He's like, no, 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 you're not going to get the job. He's like, um, but i got to give six people for the interview. And I know the person who's going to get the job, but I just need six people to go. 
So he said, can you do me a favor? Can you go? And I said, okay, sure, I can do that. So he said, well, look, you've got to come to my office. You've got to get briefed. Okay, briefed, fine. So I turn up and it's cold and wet and muddy at his office. And it's about seven o'clock at night. And it's dark and just England and horrible. And I walk in and he's like the only guy in this office. Must have had 25 people also working there. And he's freaking out. And I'm thinking to myself, this is really weird. Why would someone be freaking out just for someone to go for an interview? Um, and I'm like, well, okay, look, I'm here. I promise I'll go tomorrow. He's like, no, I've got to brief you. It's got to sound authentic. It's got to sound like you really want this job. I'm like, okay. So I'm like, but why are you freaking out? He's like, well, I'm getting married tomorrow. <laughs> like, You're getting married? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, why are you here? It's like, you should be at home getting ready or something. He's like, no, 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 I've got to brief you. I'm like, okay, the guy takes his job very seriously, fair enough. So he starts reading off the sheet of paper about what this job was, the role of this job. And I said, hey, you know what? Why don't we just cut to the chase? Give me the piece of paper and then I will go to the interview, I promise. And then, you know, we'll give you a call a couple of days after you've had your wedding. He's like, no, 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 I cannot give you this piece of paper. That would um, not be very ethical of me. I'm like, okay. So we carry on. We go through the sheet a little bit more. I'm like, you know what? Could you photocopy that piece of paper and give it to me? He's like, oh, sure, I could do that. What? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how this guy was said, but what? I'm like, okay, that works for you. So I, I get this little bit of paper, and I go the next day, and I turn up for this um, interview, and it's in a lobby of a hotel, and it's kind of on my rounds for the day, no big deal. And I turn up, and a little French lady turns up. She's like, I don't know, maybe four foot. Five, 4.6. She's tiny. And she's late because all French people are late. I don't know. Do you have any listeners that are French? I hope not. Anyway. I don't. No. no. Okay, good. Okay. So and all French people are always late. Um, and so she comes up. She goes, hey, um, you're for the interview? I'm like, yes, I am. And she said, well, what job have you come for? I said, well, what jobs have you got? Because I don't care. She says, well, I got this marketing manager job um, for the UK based in Slough, which is the armpit of England. Um, and I've got this marketing manager job for Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Now, the sheet of paper that I had in front of me said marketing manager for the UK, which I'm like, okay, I guess I could be qualified for that. I'd never been to Eastern Europe or the Middle East. And I'm like, yep, that's the job. And she said, not the one in the UK? I'm like, no. She's like, oh, that's really good. I haven't seen anyone for that other job. I'm like, what do you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, and she's, the first question she said to me is, so how do you see the job? So I got out my piece of paper and I read it back to her. And she looked at me and she kind of was quiet for a moment. And she said, that's amazing. That's how we see the job too. I'm like, yeah, like verbatim. Yeah, right. I'm like, maybe it'd been translated from French to English in the process. I don't know. But she's like, I'm like, okay, that's cool. And then I left. I didn't care. You know, I had my things to do. I was enjoying my my um my work. I enjoyed everything in the UK. So then about a week later, they called me up. Not the headhunter, but the company directly. They called me up and said, hey, Nick, can you come for a second interview? I'm about to say no, because I'm really happy with what I'm doing. And they're like, and that interview is in Munich. I'm like, Munich. Okay, sure. So they like, just turn up to the airport. You'll find a um, ticket waiting for you and we'll see you next Tuesday. I'm like, okay. So I go to the airport, take a day off work, go to the airport and I go to the counter and sure enough, there's a direct flight for me in business class to go to Munich. I'm like, that sounds pretty cool. Land in Munich. I have an address to go to. I go on a train. I take a taxi. I find this place. I turn up for an interview. I get a 30 minute interview and they're like, okay, thanks very much. I'm like, okay, that was a long way to come from the UK to Munich, but okay, we'll, we'll deal with that. Then I play around a little bit and I have a, maybe a beer or two and then I take my flight back. I'm like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> they call me back the next week. They're like, hey, Nick, can we interview you? And I'm thinking in my head, sure, where are they going to send me to? And they're like, we need to interview you in Paris. Mm. I'm like, okay, sure, I'm in. So literally, same deal. I go to the airport, business class ticket. I find my place in Paris. I do a 30-minute interview. I come back again. And as I'm flying in into England and it's raining cold in England, 
I'm driving over all this um, traffic, which is you know rush hour traffic, and I'm sitting in business class with a big leather seat and a glass of champagne. I'm thinking, <laughs> this job's pretty good. Maybe I should consider it. Yeah. And so I took the job, um, and they moved me to Paris. They never, ever flew me in business class. But hey, that's how I got into that job. <laughs> when did you decide that you wanted to start your own gig? So I knew way early that I wanted to. My, I have great grandparents who, uh, one who had a um, toy factory and he owned that business. I had another one who owned a firework factory and manufactured fireworks. So it's kind of always been in, in um, my family. I have a grandfather who had a stockbroking company in, in London. Mm. So it, it was always there. So I always knew that. I saw what hard work and owning your own business could do for an individual and do for a family. So I, I always knew that was going to be there. So I liked working for the small company. I learned a lot. Then I went to work for a large technology company. I learned more again. But I was always looking for the next move. Mm. Um, and then when I was um, pushed into Eastern Europe and the Middle East for that large technology company, I, then I saw the opportunity. Gotcha. And is that when you started your PR and marketing agency? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I worked over Eastern Europe and the Middle East. So that's quite a lot of countries, 30 odd countries. And I, at that time in late 80s, early 90s, I could find agencies that understood how to do things well from a marketing perspective in Eastern Europe, but I couldn't find it in the Middle East. So I relocated myself down to Dubai, which is a long story, but I did that. And I looked around and there were maybe one or two agencies just starting at that time. The big names that we know today didn't exist, mm. certainly not in the Middle East. Um, I think Sachi and Sachi maybe had like a five-person team in the whole of the Middle East at that time. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> um, so I worked for a couple of years just to understand the market. And then when I thought time was right, I called up maybe five, six friends. And they all were marketing managers for tech companies and said, hey, if I start the agency, will you give me the business? And they're like, yes. Mm. And that was it. So I, I was very fortunate. I started with great clients, brand name clients, grew the team very quickly. And um, unlike so many agencies, my challenge wasn't necessarily finding the business in the early ages. It was finding office space and finding stuff and keeping everyone trained. And then all the complexities of being in, in a, a country where Arabic was the first language, trying to get the dynamics of different teams. That was always more of a challenge than actually finding business when I first started. So this was in about 1999 or so? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's crazy when I say 1999 out loud. I'm like, oh, that was just 1999. And then I'm uh -huh. like, wait, that was 20 years ago. Uh-huh. Now. Right. Um, what kind of, I mean, there was no social media. There was no Google, right? Right. Not really anyways. No, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What kind of marketing services were you providing for these companies? Very traditional public relations, writing stories, getting them translated into Arabic, trying to place them into um, newspapers, magazines. Um, a lot of that was going on. We were buying and selling advertising as well, but we weren't an ad agency as such, so that was on the side. A lot of in-person events, um, trainings. Um, I mean, when I was first in the region, maybe 98, 97, 99, around that time, I mean, we would literally get materials and burn them on CDs and send them out. Mm -hmm. Even press releases, you know, literally we would stuff envelopes and put a stamp on them to get them out to people. That was kind of kind of insane. <laughs> Just really like ground and pound type of stuff. Yeah. I would consider that. Yeah, that's right. A lot of press conferences. We'd get people together. Journalists wanted to come out. They're like, yeah, we'll get out of the office. We'll come to a press conference. Why not? Going to give us some food? Yeah, we'll be there. Yeah. Crazy. Now I feel like that's impossible to get oh, yeah. done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not going to happen now. No, 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 no. 15 minutes on a webinar, maybe. We'll see how we go, right? Yeah. So you mentioned your father and your grandfather both had their own businesses. Yep. Mm -hmm. Toy factory, fireworks. Yep. Long way from marketing. Yeah. Do you remember your your father and grandfather being happy as business owners as well? 
Um, to some extent. I, I think they probably segmented their personal and their business lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when I started growing up, people you know, were playing around with that term, the work-life balance. Now I think it's a work-life integration. Right. Um, so I don't think they, they had an integrated life. I mean, they left the house, they got on a train, they commuted, they went to an office, they did stuff, and they got on a train and came back. But I still saw that the enjoyment when they left the house and when they came. The spark was in their eye going both ways. Mm. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Did you have like a pretty solid childhood? Like no struggles or anything like that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we all have like easy childhoods. No, no, no. Uh, I think my mother and father have been married nine times, but never to each other. So there's a mm. lot of people coming and going there, um, which is fine. Um, I wouldn't say that, um, you know, we were... Um, weren't particularly well off. Oh, my mother, her generation weren't particularly. Um, but yeah, the overcoming of dyslexia, the going back and forth to, to boarding school. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I wouldn't see my mother for, I don't know, nine weeks at a time or whatever that was. Um, so yeah, that wasn't necessarily easy. Um, yeah, I was, it was okay. It, it was all fine. Um, yeah. the, I mean, yeah, no one had money back then. You know, it was the beginning of computers and computer games. That was kind of fun. You know, we yeah. had to put a cassette player in and go, get it going. And like, <laughs> yeah. So as far as entertainment, we didn't have very much, um, not by today's talent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, boarding school, as well as being really hard and could be very depressing and very boring, also had great opportunities in a way. You know, you're hanging out with a bunch of friends all the time. Right. Um, you know, and at a young age, I could. Um, you know, try and escape or something like that and you know, go down Did the you far- try and escape? Oh, all the time. Yeah, we'd go across the, uh, we'd go down <laughs> the far escape and then if we went over the barbed wire fence and through the minefield, we'd get to the girls' school. So, you know, all boys' school there next to the all girls' school. Yeah, it wasn't so bad. <laughs> you know, the reason I asked that is because you mentioned work-life integration and now I'm, I'm and you seem to be a pretty happy dude. Um, but, and I, and I was wondering if that, if, there was some pattern like you saw your grandfather being happy, your dad being happy owning their own business, and that's why you had that, um, or at least you felt as if maybe you had to be an entrepreneur or business owner to get that same sort of freedom. Um, when did you start realizing that you know happiness and fulfillment might be more important than your gross revenue? Day one of giving up the big high-tech company, um, I remember standing on the side of the road. I think I was probably kind of waiting to pick up a girlfriend or something like that. And this huge weight was off my shoulder. Up until that point, I'd spent a few years working in large corporate America. And um, you're not in control of everything. Not only are you not in control of everything, um, you know that not everyone's pulling in the same direction. Mm. You just have different objectives. There are people doing the power thing. There are people doing political stuff. I remember that first afternoon when I hands in my notice go, wow, I don't have to put up with any of that bullshit that I've been putting up with before. And even though I thought I was always doing the right thing, trying to get better marketing you know, for the company, I realized there were people who had slightly different agendas. And that's what I wanted freedom from. Because ultimately, I liked the company. I liked the products they had. That all made sense. I liked the people I reported to. But I just realized that there was so much other stuff going on. And then moving into that small company environment, I'm like, oh, now this is exciting. Not only are we free from those politics, not only can I get a small group of people and we can all pull in the same direction so we can achieve way more. We can just, we can go quicker. We haven't got in that corporate politics that we have to just like deal mm. with none of that. And sure, yeah, we got freedom. We we understand now that we, we can go out and play golf or go sailing or whatever we wanted to go and do. We could do that. Go diving. That was great. 
But at the same time, it's like we put in the effort, we work really hard, then we know the rewards are coming to us. Mm -hmm. So when I first started, it was a, a case of work harder, make more money. Then what I realized was, and that could give me happiness, that was totally cool. Because um, more money I had, the more ventures I could go in. Um, but then I realized that actually you've got to work smarter, not harder as an entrepreneur, because you can get away with that. You, no one's expecting you to work the nine to five. Right. Hey, if we can get the whole day done in the first three hours, let's just do that. Let's just be smarter about this and have more fun at the same time. Interesting. Early on, my mentality and where I feel I am still in my business is a place where like, I still have to work 10, 12, 14 hours, um, at least Monday through Friday and some Saturdays. Right. Right. Um, when did that part stop for you? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think... Let's just get down to the basics. When you're in Dubai, you're in a Muslim society, um, and the dating pool is pretty damn small. So I realized pretty quickly I had to I had to travel if I wanted to date, and I had to find like cool people to date. So I would travel a lot. And being being in a small environment such as Dubai back then, when never no one had ever heard of Dubai, you know, all these great developments that we know now um, hadn't been started. Um, so I knew I had to travel. So I don't think I ever stayed since I started my company there more than two and a half months in the country without traveling out of the country. Mm. So I would constantly travel and I would find excuses to travel to meet other entrepreneurs would be a lot of it. And then to meet other friends as well. Um, and so I knew that I had to set up the business from day one so it could operate with me being not there. And if we're talking about you know, starting up in 1999, the communication channels weren't as cool as they are now. You know, it was still dial up mm. from my cell phone kind of craziness. Um, so yeah, I wasn't easily, you know, couldn't just slack someone's, hey, can you, can you, are you on this? I pretty much had to go away for two, three working days at any given time. And I had to trust that people could do it. So trust was that first element. Can I trust and put the people around me that I can walk away and go, you can make mistakes if you want, but generally I trust these people to get stuff done. And then the second level was, okay, now don't contact me unless someone is going to die. That's, we had that conversation. We're like, you're not going to get in trouble for whatever you do. You can make mistakes. Second level, don't call me unless you have to. I think maybe back then because it was going to cost a fortune to reach me. But anyway, either way, it was totally cool. <laughs> I know. I wonder if that flies today. Yeah, right. And <laughs> so then the next level beyond that was I realized that even when I was in town, even if I was in the office or in the city, I would actually try and put roadblocks around me so people couldn't reach me and they had to work it out for themselves. And if you can keep your team members long enough, and they learn. That was where this, the realization came in. I'm like, I trust these people and I can see them working out the answer. Maybe I would have done it differently myself because let's face it, it's a control issue. Every entrepreneur, I'm sure you're the same. I totally was this way. I know I can do it better than anyone else, right? I mean, entrepreneurs were like that. We've done it. Yeah. We've done everything. So we know we can do it better. But as soon as you can let go of it and go, okay, no, I will not touch this element, this tactic, this strategy, whatever it might be and I trust someone else to do it, then that's where the magic happened. And then you, if you can keep the team together and you can over-improve them, and then you could measure them with keeping hands off, that was a real thing, real game changer. Do you feel like the, the passion and fulfillment that you get out of entrepreneurship is in marketing itself or out of like building businesses and communities? Oh, I, I think that ebbs and flows. It, it's, it's, definitely, it's all those things and more. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, and the people I work with, I ask them that question. And, you know, it could be that they love creating employment or that they um, love being a pillar of society or, or they like the, the 
political influence that it brings. All these things things are, you know, just as real to anyone else. So for me, yeah, I love the marketing element. That's super fun. That's probably the area that I like to let go of least. But maybe that's changing even now as I think about it. There are, you know, I've been in marketing for a long time. And sure, you, you need a press release written? No problem. Give it to me. 30 minutes is turned around. It's out the door. But let's face it, that's not a primary driver today. If, yeah, you need a cool landing page done. If you want a social media strategy put in place, that's not something that I've grown up doing. So mm-hmm. as marketing develops, I have to let go of more things. Right. So yeah, maybe it changes. <laughs> so you wrote a book, Exactly Where You Want to Be. You talk about champagne moments. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to the listener what a champagne moment is? Sure, absolutely. So first of all, goals suck. Having a goal is just not exciting. Um, Hold on, listener. <laughs> Before he wrecks everything that I've been doing uh-oh, uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> for the last five years. Okay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, I'm so like goal oriented and right, like all okay. of this, right? Yeah. And for some people, goals work, but there yeah. are some some inherent problems with goals. First of all, a goal, if it's not set correctly, is not going to be good. Mm. Okay. So unless you know exactly where you want to be going, a goal, it may be not be correct. You know, and You've heard me say this before. If you take off in a plane and you're piloting a plane and you want to go to New York and you leave from John Wayne Airport and you're off by two degrees, you're going to be in Washington, D.C. It's just the way it is. So your goal has got to be really exact and not a lot of people spend the time to go through that goal process to really find it. Um, Also, goals can be um, constrictive. They can stop you being creative. They can stop you um, reacting to the environment whatever we're working in, our customers' requirements. So they can actually slow you down as well. Um, But overall, they're not motivational. So if you don't hit a goal, you're generally not very happy. So one, you can be blinded. It's like wearing blinkers. You got to go for the goal. Or you just don't hit the goal, and that's going to be an issue as well. So what we prefer to do is to look at something called a champagne moment. So a champagne moment is um, it's not something you just come up with in two or three seconds. Um, but it's something that's personal to you. It goes beyond the business goals. And that's where the integration between personal and business comes together. So, um, you know, I can give you some examples of people that had goals. So um, that's fine. And, you know, plenty of business have goals. It's normally a revenue goal or it's hiring X number of people goal or putting certain processes in place or developing a new product. Those are all great goals. But ultimately, if you have an individual and particularly a business owner or an entrepreneur who can have a champagne moment, the one thing that's personal to them, then they'll do everything they need in the business to make that possible that they can hit their personal life goal. Can you give us an example of one? Yeah, great. So I'm working with someone very recently, and his champagne moment was to build his second home in Croatia. So we're still talking to someone here in Orange County, um, and they own a great house in Orange County, and they've had been in business for 30-plus years, engineering company, and they had about 70 people on their team. And he told me that when I went into his office, it was obvious. He had pictures of this area in Croatia. I'm like, that looks really pretty. Where is that? He's like, oh, that's where I came from. And he's like, and one day I want to build a house right there. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, what would happen if you had the house? He goes, well, that's where I want to retire. And my family love going there. So it's going to bring you closer to my kids and my grandkids. And my wife loves going there. I'm like, okay, so what's stopping you going there? So, well, you know, first of all, I'm working 12-hour days. Two, I'd need the money to build a house. Three, I need the freedom to go and actually run that as well. So I'm like, okay, there's a lot that's got to happen here. So his champagne moment was to build his second home in Croatia. But for him to achieve that over a course of two or three years, we had to increase the revenue of the company. We had to look at profitability so he had money that he could take out as the owner. And he wanted to sell the company. 
He'd already tried to sell three times previously. So he had to put in plan a place. So he had the right people around him so he could actually go, go through the M&A. Um, and he did that, succeeded with that. So he got the price up, um, as in the, the um, revenue. He got the profit up. He sold the company. And now he's on the, the backside of that sale. So he's probably a year into it right now. And he's broken ground at the beginning of this year on his second home. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So people have all kinds of champagne moments. It could be very, it's got to be personal. Um, someone um, I work with has just returned from a two-week vacation, um, first class all the way with the family. And that's something they wanted to do for a long time. But to do it, a number of things had to happen. Again, revenues had to be at a certain level. Profitability had to be at a certain level. They had to change the structure um, legally of the company. They had to change some of the bank loans, which um, meant that they couldn't take money out as an owner's withdrawal. A number of things had to happen. And if you could put all those things together and you achieve something yourself, you know you've got that. You know you've reached it. And that's why we call it champagne moment because you can pop the cork and go, yeah, I hit what I wanted to hit. Yeah. So are you saying that when somebody sets up their champagne moment, um, that's kind of just the benchmark for what they're achieving within their business? Yeah, within their business. Yeah. So then once you set the champagne moment with, let's say, a client or somebody mm -hmm. that you're coaching— What's the next step for that person? Okay. So, so then we break it down and go, okay, so what are the things that got to happen? Mm. So they're going to be uh, critical success factors that will take your business forward. A and then all the goals suck. You you're going to have to put some goals in there. Yeah. Okay, so we need revenue to hit this rev this level. Um, we need profitability to be here. Whatever it might be, we need to hire X number of people. We need these processes put in place. We need to streamline whatever. We need to make this more efficient. All those kind of things. So we put in some goals there. And then we can break down strategies and tactics. And it's that simple. It's kind of my way of saying, okay, I'm, I'm not an artist, but I can color by numbers. So if I can break it down to the smallest little square and tell me what number my color is that goes in there, we can do it. And it's the same for business. Okay, well, these are the things that have to happen in business. They will allow us to hit these goals. To hit these goals, we need a certain amount of strategies put in place, and each strategy has multiple tactics behind it. So when you break it down to, let's say, making more revenue, that means you need more leads, Okay, well, how are you getting your leads? How are you converting your leads? Let's take each of these smaller elements and break it down. I think that's really important, obviously. But I believe that uh, there are too many goals without a path to get there. Yeah, right. You know? um, do you ever feel like somebody has, like, I know that goals suck, mm -hmm. but do you ever feel like you've encountered a client where their goal is just too big? Uh, too big or too small? Really? Um, yeah. So, in fact, I work with more people who, when they tell me their goal, I'm like, I think you can do better than that. Um, and that's fun. And to work with through the process. Go so, that's not just a fun thing for you to say. Like, you mean that. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, probably every month I'm working with someone who says, no, there's no way these prices could be higher than they are right now. Mm. And, and I can normally find a way that prices should be higher and profits can thus be bigger. It's, mm -hmm. um, you know, that that's really straight math as mm -hmm. far as that's concerned. So, yeah, I, I don't want people to just be satisfied, just, just have enough money to go home and to pay whatever the rent is. That's, and they got to work. They know they got to work the 11 hours. That's totally against what I'm about. Right. Like, no, 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 let's, let's dream a little bit. What's really important to you? Before I could understand your champagne moment, I have to know what's important to you. What do you love doing? What do you love at work? What don't you love at work? What are the things um, that you like doing with your family? What are the things, how much money do you think you need to um, keep your family in the way that you want to keep them? Um, what other intangible rewards do you get out of being in business? Hobbies, lifestyle, health, spiritual interests, humanitarian interests, all these things are going to be important. And unless I can get the root of the individual, I can't understand really why they're doing it. It's yeah. the hardest question, the why, why. 
Yeah, that's pretty fundamental, I feel like. But we always forget what it is. We get caught in like the rat race of everything. Yeah, that's right. The day to day and like, well, you know, where's the fun in that? You know, we get a spend like two hours trying to rebook a flight or something. We're like, you know, this is just crap. Why are we doing this? Like, Interesting. Yeah. I did that today. Yeah, right. So did I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder yeah. that came to mind. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned that running a business should be fun. How can somebody make that fun? I mean, of course, like, you know, I do have fun doing mm-hmm. what I'm doing, but, you know, I would say 80% of it feels like hard work and the 20% that's fun, uh-huh. I have to remind myself that it's fun. Right. No, 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 I think that's a great question. And actually, it's relatively easy. I think there's two elements to it. The first thing is to write down what you like doing and then what you don't like doing, what you'd rather delegate if you could. If you had unlimited resources around you, what would you delegate? You could prioritize that. So a lot of business owners say, oh, well, I, I hate doing the accounting or I hate doing the administration or I hate Cold calls. I don't know. Could be any of those kind of things. Those are the most common I, I come across. So then there's the understanding that whatever we hate doing, there is someone who loves doing that. So how do we find them? I mean, now it's a lot easier. I mean, we have all kinds of great outsourcing tools right on our computer or on our phone that we can just reach someone. Um, you know, the other day I wanted to, um, I'm no designer. I wanted to get something changed on a PDF. I didn't have the right software. I knew I could figure it out. But I do, didn't know for $5, I could probably go and find someone who could just do it for me and get it back in the next three hours. That's it. It's just finding the stuff you don't want to do. Right. And then it's focusing as much effort as you can on the stuff you love doing. And that's normally the next element, which is really hard for business entrepreneurs. They normally tell me that they don't have enough time. So the secret to that is really scheduling your own time. We're all great at putting calendar invites to someone for a meeting. But we're not so good at actually blocking out our own time. And go, okay, I'm going to work on this, doing this directly for a customer or for myself or setting something up or working with someone in my team and block out that 15, 30, one hour, whatever it's going to be and keep to it. Why do you think a lot of business owners don't do that? Or at least in your experience, what's been the biggest reason that they're not scheduling time to focus on different elements of their business? Squirrel. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's a bright light somewhere else. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I can go and do that now. That's cool. And yeah, I know I've got to really finish writing that, but oh, someone's going to give me a call about something else. Yeah, I'll do that as well. Yeah, that's fine. It's so that they, most people I know who are entrepreneurial see the opportunity in everything. <laughs> and so they're just so easy to just like change the course of that whole day. So it's just the, you know, it's planning a little bit more for yourself and trying to keep yourself in line. And, and if you need to add buffer so you can go and do the craziness, that's fine. That's cool. But if you put in four things with an hour block for your day and you know you're, you're going to get through them all. Either you're going to get through them in the first four hours and then you just go off and have fun yeah. or you know the second hour something else comes in okay, I've got to move that a little bit later now. Yeah. Have you ever felt like you had so much to do so then you write everything down and some of them are like bigger projects to right. tackle, bigger mm-hmm. quote unquote projects yeah. to tackle and then you realize that when you have that list and you start working through it, it only actually takes you like two and a half hours. Goodness. Yeah, right. Yeah, I come across business owners all the time, and they show me this to-do list, and it has 25 things on it. I'm like, well, you can't do all, I mean, like, no, that doesn't make sense. You can't have 25 things to do today. Uh, and when I break it down, I'm like, okay, these are the things that are going to take multiple hours, and these are things that we're relying on someone else, and these are the quick things. Okay, so now schedule two hours to go through the quick things. They're all done. Yeah. Now your to-do list has six things, and they're important things. And that comes back to what are your critical success factors? What are really going to drive the business forward? So, yeah, we have it in our home life as well. Yeah, all those little things you want to go and repair or change in the house, whatever. It's like, just get through them all, 
get them off your plate. Let's not even think about them. Let's just be concentrated on the big stuff. When you start working with business owners to get them operating more smoothly and mm-hmm. start delegating it and actually owning the business and working mm-hmm. on the business, what are some of the common um, what are some of the common like holes in their business operation that you see? Okay, well, going beyond what we talked about already of letting go, mm-hmm. actually trusting someone else to do it, then the next level is normally their existing team. Um, if they're good or if they're not so good. So first of all, do they have the right people in the organization? And then all the, those people doing the right things. So that's tricky. And if you've got someone working for you and they've been working for you for a couple of years or more, then you're not going to just get rid of them just because you sit down one day and go, maybe they're not the right fit. But you should be. Um, you know, I will go in and the great thing about being a coach to a business owner is that I just want the best for the business owner. So I will tell them if we're seeing team members that aren't pulling their weight or if someone I'm coaching with brings up that same team member every time I go in and they're frustrated with them, okay, we need to look about this this person. Are they the right person culturally for where you want to take the company? Because culture goes for a long term. So is the culture the right person? Then I want to know, can the person really do it? Do they want to be there? And do they have the capacity to do it? So I call it, you know, get it, want it, capacity element to it. Um, I didn't come up with it, but that's what we look at for each individual. Um, and so that's the hardest thing, having the right team around you. Um, because there's a big difference between being a solopreneur and being an entrepreneur. Um, and entrepreneurs start as solopreneurs, sure, but they get through that solopreneur phase really quickly, the real entrepreneurs, right? And then they, they manage to attract this team because they've got this magnetic feel about them. And people want to come and work for them. And sure, yeah, you might get through a few people. That's just the way it works. But when I sit down with someone and it's been them and only them, and maybe they outsource their accounting for like five years, chances are they don't suddenly want to just grow their business. Most people that I sit down with already have three people at least. I mean, you know, it could be up to 100, but, you know, they've had some element of that managing. They know they need people around them. So that's the first element. Make sure you have people around you. Make sure they're the right people. And then the sky really is the limit, right? Mm. You mentioned uh, in a video that you did about how to become more profitable, right? And you said there's really only two things that we can do. We can sell more or we can sell what we're already selling at a higher price. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, I know that it's such a vague question, but what about for the person, let's say, they own a, uh, let's just take a, a, a boutique fitness studio where there's only 25 bikes. How can that person sell more if they have a, uh, if there's essentially like a cap right. to how, sure. many, how much they can sell per session? Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's the classic, uh, do you want fries with that? That's really what it goes with. It's like, do you need personal time as well as coming in for a group class on the bikes? Um, do you need like one-on-one consultation about your nutrition? Uh, you know, can we have someone, can we have people who come in and do half the time on the bike, then half the time, you know, skipping rope? Um, it's creating that suite of um, products that's going to work. Um, and often I see that companies sell more than one thing normally. Mm-hmm. Um, but most clients know them for one thing. So they're just not cross-selling. I mean, you know, we hear about this with big companies all the time. So, you know, take some of these great brands that a lot of people love, take, you know, once people have bought into the Apple ecosystem, they'll 
buy anything that's coming out there. Um, the same with Virgin. You know, once you get into that Virgin brand, you, you want to buy everything. And that's when we see these big um, companies, Disney, exactly the same. And they can really diversify in multiple areas. So as a smaller company, just, just think about that on a smaller level. So, yeah, if you've got a fitness company, well, what about adding um, another element that's very close, but maybe you don't need to do it yourself? Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know, off the top of my head, I mean, um, why don't we offer you nutritious meals being delivered? Now, I know you're not the chef, you're not going to do that, but under your brand, would someone buy into that? And then could you find someone to do that for you? Mm. Do you focus a lot on brand building with your clients to do things like that? Um, we, we do certainly examine it. I mean, there are definitely people who specialize in that, and that, that's a great area. Mm. Um, but marketing, you know, let's, let's start from the very beginning, the four Ps. I don't think people actually go back and go, okay, let's look at our product. Is the product up to date? Are there people who are leapfrogging my product? You know, that's, that's, that's where we can see in society around us is changing, and we can see large companies aren't necessarily keeping up. Yeah, that's why 50% of the population have cut the cord on TV. And Netflix have had this huge uptake. But bet you that Netflix is sitting around right now going, okay, who's going to overtake us? And I bet I know who's going to be as well. And I bet the people who are planning that have been planning it for three years. So let's think about that on a smaller level. You know, when I had a marketing agency and we offered public relations, that was fine at that time. But then when social media started kicking off, we're like, okay, who's going to take over social media? Is it going to be the advertising agency or the PR agency? How, how do we frame that? And now I wouldn't go out and launch a PR agency. That would be crazy. There isn't <laughs> enough traditional media out there. Right. Yeah. So keep keep examining, keep re- reinventing. That's really important. What do you think or what have you seen be the biggest barrier to fulfillment and happy and happiness for business owners? People don't think what they want. So sometimes I'll sit down with a business owner and I'll say, well, tell me your interests outside of work. And I go, I haven't got any. Hmm. Okay. So now tell me more about the business. Yeah, well, you know, I have these struggles and these things and this frustrates me. I'm like, okay, so you don't love the business and that's all you're doing. So that's the major problem. But if I can sit down with someone and identify what they love doing, that's cool. And normally it's from times gone by. It's not something they suddenly thought of. Sure, there are some people who have suddenly taken up skiing and they want to go skiing. I sat down with someone and relatively boring business. She has an insurance business. Um and I'm like, well, tell me about when you started the insurance business. She goes, well, I used to work for another guy who had insurance, and I went on this cycling vacation in Italy, and um, I just knew it was time to break away and start on my own. I'm like, that sounds great. I'm like, so you like cycling. That's cool. When was the last time you went cycling? She's like, are you crazy? I run a business. I haven't got time to go cycling. I'm like, well, where's your bike? She goes, "On in the garage. It hasn't come out since I started the business. I'm like, okay. Right. First session, we're going to plan how do we get you back on a bicycle. Plan one is probably sending your bike in to get whatever you need to do so it's actually rideable. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to plan the time. And then we're going to plan who you're going to call so you can go cycling with. And within a month or two, we're going to have you out cycling. So that's what's important. It's really finding out what that passion is. What do you love doing? Mm. Um, and that could be spending time with a family. You know, there's many things it could be. Do you feel as if many business owners today are tricking themselves into thinking that they don't have enough time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're blinkered. They're doing the day-to-day and they're getting too engrossed in it. So, you know, without wishing, wishing to um, repeat everything, it, it's, 
they're just sucked in day to day. They're not working on the business, still working in the business. They haven't got the team around them. So that doesn't make them happy. Every small thing is going to be frustrating. They've got to renegotiate with their telephone carrier. They've got to, you know, and computer goes wrong. That's not good. Google's down. What are we going to, how are we going to deal with that? You know, yeah. it's like all those things. It's no, and, and that sucks up their time. And unless they're passionate about getting out of the business, Fine. Now, there are some people who just run their businesses 12, 14, 16 hours a day, and they love it. Those mm -hmm. people do exist. That's probably because their business takes them to other things that they love. So it was a fantastic guy right now, and he loves um, music, live music. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they, his business is around the events that takes him to EDM, it's like, that's great. That, that's it. So when I say to him, you know, what do you like doing? He's like, no, I, I should work the whole time. But his work takes him to his other mm. passions. So that's and this cool. is the integration part. Right, yeah. Do you think that a lot of businesses can create moments where it integrates the things that they love and their work at the same time? So we look at the large companies and, you know, in the last decade or so, you go and work for Google and there's a slide, you know, or there's, um, you know, table tennis there or, I don't know, an arcade machine. That's kind of someone's vain attempt to go, oh, let's bring some fun stuff into the office. And then if we provide food, many people won't leave. And, and so there was that kind of integration. But now if we work for a small company, and let's face it, most people work for a small company. They don't work for the big companies. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it's real. It's totally authentic now. And, and that's what's great. You know, we, we can go in an office and whatever is fun to those group of individuals can be part of it. Yeah. And that's what makes it real. It's interesting. I was telling myself for two years that I needed to find a client in New York mm -hmm. because I love the city mm -hmm. and I just needed more reasons to go over right. there. So I right. worked really, I didn't, I take that back. I didn't work very hard to find right. that client, but I always like made trips out there, made the contacts and whatever. And then eventually something finally turned around and now it's there. So it accomplishes two things, the travel to a city that I love and I'm still working. So it's like, I almost right. feel guilty because I'm having right. fun at work. Isn't that the way it is? The same from an age perspective. You you could choose to work with who you want, so your team around you is your choice, but also your clients. So, you, you know, I know you have a specialty in your agency of the kind of clients you'd like to represent, and that's because you have an interest in that area. Mm -hmm. If if I knew that your agency represented um, natural health foods, things like that, and you came in and I came in, I would not expect to see you overweight. That's just like, it wouldn't be a match, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, people I know who have agencies that specialize in automotive love cars. Right. It makes sense. They're finding their passion. They're integrating. But if we can be a little bit more specific about it, be more conscious of it, then let's do that. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about your book? Sure, let's do that. What can somebody expect to find in exactly where you want to be? Okay, so um, we go through the same process in that book that um, we do in coaching. So, you know, not every entrepreneur can afford to have a coach, and we get that. So go on Amazon, buy the book, do it yourself. So it really is the same kind of thing. So the first part of that book is really understanding who you are. So just as I would go in and in the first coaching session, I would ask a series of 15 questions to understand the individual and their personal vision, the book takes you through that in the first chapter. And then the next thing I would do if I was coach someone, I would go through a business vision. And that's exactly what the book does. So the first part of the book is that foundation. Like what's, you know, what's my bigger reason for being in business? So you can find, identify your passion. Then the second part of the book goes through various elements, sales, marketing, outsourcing, um, hiring people, sales management, mm. um, all those elements that every business has. 
And although I work with multiple different industries, the fun of it is that running a business is running a business. So I can go and see someone who's an engineering company and then take it to someone who has a marketing agency. And they're the same pains that an entrepreneur has. So a lot of those um, elements are talked about through the book by chapter. So you can kind of, you can make your own little journey. You know, whatever's important, uh-oh, staff are giving me a hard time right now. Then So let's go and look at that chapter next. Um, and then there are tools in there and there's little cheat sheets in there. So that's what's fun about it. Um, and then towards the end of the book, then I really talk about the champagne moment and how someone can identify their champagne moment, gives plenty of examples of entrepreneurs in the local community who have done that. Mm. Um, so that that's the journey of the book. And as long as people take some something from there, th- then my job's done. I'm right. like, yeah, if, you, if I made one entrepreneur slightly better, I'm super happy. Mm-hmm. And if they've invested whatever book costs plus an hour or two to read something and they've got great value from that, could not be happier. What's your champagne moment? So, you know, my champagne moment gets updated in my family and I make my kids have champagne moments. Not that, you know, I'm obsessed by it, but, you know, helps them. Um, <laughs> so, in fact, one of my champagne moments previously was to write a book. Mm. Uh, and it had been on my mind for a long time. But once I set that, written it out and told people, it became a reality. You're like, I'll write a, I'll, my champagne moment will be a book about about champagne. That's moments. right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, right. It all, all integrates, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so right now, and I'll put it out there, my my aim, my next champagne moment is to talk on a TED stage. Mm. Now, that's not something I can just go and do. There are a number of elements I know I've got to put in place mm-hmm. to make that possible. So yeah, so I have a plan of how to do that. Can, um, you, can you let us into some of your plan? Yeah, sure. So um, I don't believe that anyone would want me as a speaker unless they thought that I had a social profile mm. um, and a number of followers. So I'm spending quite a lot of time right now and working with some specialists so my social media can you know, grow and expand. I can have followers and people can interact with me on that level. I'm also honing my skills as far as public speaking, so that's something else I'm doing. Um, so there's a number of different elements mm. that I'm, I'm doing there. See, I love how practical that stuff is. Like, I want to talk on TED. Well, uh, maybe I should speak more in public so that when I get there, you know what I mean? Build up the content. It's just so practical. Right, exactly. You know? Yeah, Yeah. so that's what I'm working on right now. So what's your champagne moment? Honestly, my champagne moment right now would just to be able to uh, enjoy the wedding that we're going to have in Sayulita. You know, so it would be, for one, paying for it, which isn't too awful. But paying for it and then just being able to kind of like relax and have all that stuff there and then be able to take two weeks off at work, you know, and like not worry about it and only worry about this, which is interesting because my entire team's going to be out there too. So <laughs> right. now I'm like, Uh-oh, who's going to be in the office? Yeah, Extra challenge. <laughs> okay. Well, if you hire someone now to get someone on your team, then they're not going to know you well enough to go to the wedding maybe? I don't know. Maybe exactly. a, yeah, right? right? That's kind of what I was thinking or... Or I was like, maybe I'll just invite all the clients too. And yeah. then... Yeah. <laughs> They'll be right there. That's cool. So no, your champagne moment is really you know, enjoying the wedding and mm-hmm. having the time. I wouldn't even add to it the having enough money to pay for it because that element has to happen for you to enjoy the wedding. Right. And I had that conversation today with someone. They, you know, they, they wanted to make sure that they moved from where they are right now to a $5,000 profit per month. That they're not there. they're breaking even right now. So that, that that's a good element to get to. First of all, small business. Um, I'm like, well, that's great, but that cannot be your champagne moment. She's like, well, no, but I'd be happy if I hit that. I'm like, no, no, no. Your champagne moment, because I've talked to her, is to write this very specific book. And she said, but you know, I don't want to say that's my champagne moment because what if no one buys it? I'm like, well, why are you writing the book? She says, well, because I'm passionate about it and I believe in it. And I think I'm like, okay, it doesn't matter if anyone buys the book. That's not your champagne moment. Your champagne moment is having your book published. 
And you cannot even work on your champagne moment. You cannot work on your book because you're worried about getting $5,000 in profit a month. So let, that, that's a, something that has to happen. But let's not make your champagne moment something which is that financial. No, your champagne moment is that book being published. And one of the things that we need to put in place to make sure that's possible is to make sure you have that profitability every month. It's so much better when you put that. That's why goals suck. Right. Because the $5,000 a month, that's a goal. It's a goal. Yeah. yeah. And if you hit that, then it's just like all of a sudden it becomes, well, now I need to get to $7,500 uh -huh. a month. Exactly. And then you never write the book. Wow. It's so heavy. Um, man, I've really enjoyed the time that we've been able to uh, to spend today mm -hmm. and like hearing a little bit more about your story, things like that. Um before I ask my final question for today, um, where can everybody find you if they wanted to connect with you? Across social media, um, but just do hashtag champagne moment. You're going to pick me up. That's the easiest way to do it. The real champagne poppy. Oh, nice. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Nick. Um, before you leave today, um, the final question is, if you could sum up your life's mission into one statement, what would it be? Oh, man, that's hot. Could have given me some warning before you asked that question. I know. Wow, what, uh, life's mission. Um, if I can help entrepreneurs have a better life themselves, they're going to be more successful. And I truly believe that it's the small business that fuels the economy and society that we're in. So I'm all about helping a business owner, an entrepreneur. And an entrepreneur typically we think is, you know, someone who started a business in the last few years, they could be second or third generation. They were just as entrepreneurial and they have just as many challenges. And in fact, normally once they're second or third generation, they have more employees or more team members to look after. So if I can help them and they can create more jobs and they can be happier, then that would be a good thing. I love that. Uh, to the listener, thank you so much for your time and your attention. If you enjoyed the episode, we would love a five-star review. If you didn't like the episode that much, feel free to stick it to us, but subscribe anyway, because we're going to have a lot of incredible, just like Nick Layton back on the show. Thanks again, Nick. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.